This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Because the Reformation began 500 years ago, because the Reformers are larger than life, because we often think of them as heroes and not so much as humans, we might forget that they were once young men, college students who were excited by new books, new ideas, and the possibilities latent in a new technology, the printing press. Today, it's the Internet. 25 years ago, on the cusp of the technological revolution, another group of young people were so excited by the same ideas that captured the imaginations of the Reformers that they set out to do in our time what the Reformers had done in theirs, to call the church back to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone. Joining me to talk about that movement, what it is and how it happened and what it means, is Mike Horton, J. Gresham Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. Along with Eric Landry, he has edited and published a new volume, The Reformation Then and Now, 25 Years of Modern Reformation Articles Celebrating 500 Years of the Reformation. This title, along with other faculty titles, is available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. I always love that part of the show. Slash bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome back to Office Hello, Hours. Hello, Scott. Glad to be back, always. You like that bell. There's something about it. I don't know. People like that bell more than they like us, I well, think. Well, probably could be. <laughs> Judging by our email. <laughs> so... I have in my hot little hands here a nice volume that you and Eric Landry put together with a number of essays taken from issues of modern Reformation over the years, quite a number of essays, most of them very brief, 42 of them gathered together under one cover. So this is sort of the greatest hits. And it is white, so it's kind of your white album in a way. (laughs) Sort of, with uh, not, let's just say, the breadth of success. (laughs) Yeah, it's been fun over the years, almost 30 years now to to publish Modern Reformation, and uh, Eric Landry has been the editor over uh, many of those years, still is the editor, and so he really pulled these together with my oversight. It's some of the best articles, especially on the doctrines related to the Reformation that you mentioned in the beginning. Well, it's got an estimable collection of authors here that uh, I think will attract the reader, should get the reader's attention. Obviously, you are in here. Alistair McGrath, Rod Rosenblatt, Lawrence Rast, Baron Ryan Glomstrom, Dave Vendrunen, Bob Godfrey, Keith Matheson, Paul Helm, Dennis Tamborello, Gene Veith, Jarman McCulloch, from Oxford, Mickey Maddox. So there's a breadth of authors here from a variety of traditions, Fitzsimmons Allison, Serena Jones, David Hall, so folks from across the spectrum. Yeah, they're mostly Reformed, Lutheran, Baptist, in our circles, confessional, but also mainliners we would not consider (laughs) in our circles, and also Roman Catholics who are specialists in the Reformation. So as I go back and look at that, I said, wow, did we publish those folks? Because (laughs) it was really exciting to get those pieces. I remember when they finally said yes, and they turned them in, and I said, oh, that's just exactly what we were looking for. You know, sometimes you get people who aren't by conviction reformed, and yet they are good scholars. And to find a Roman Catholic who gets Calvin better sometimes than many Calvinists is really a treasure. So we tried to bring together the best scholarship and ask them, hey, can you put these really complicated historical questions in context? 
And then when we turn for the doctrinal normative positions, of course, we look for people in the Reformation orbit who are convinced of these truths. In any movement, and arguably this is a movement about recovering the core convictions of the Reformation, there is always or usually some kind of a journal or a magazine around which people coalesce, which helps to articulate what this group of people is trying to say. I think, for example, of the influence of a magazine like National Review, and there are other kinds of magazines that have had a kind of seminal influence on a group of people around which they've sort of organized. And it seems to me, MR, Modern Reformation, is that kind of a publication. Thanks, Scott. That it has inspired people, informed people, attracted people. Repelled people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, that happens, right? I mean, not everybody was a big fan of Calvin and Luther, right? I I hear that, yeah. (laughs) I mean, as hard as it is for us to imagine, not everybody was attracted. And so at least people were able to read Calvin and Luther and understand what they were saying. And there was something to which to respond, I guess. Yeah, I think that one of the great things about the Reformers is 500 years later, we can look back and in our context say, wow, I mean, they're saying pretty much the same thing. But in their own day, of course, as you know very well, they didn't see it that way. They saw themselves as... Well, they were in the midst of an argument, not only with Rome and the Anabaptists, but even among themselves on some significant topics. But 500 years later, we have the benefit, I think it is a benefit, of hindsight to be able to look back and say, look, given what we're facing today, the issues that divide us, confessional Reformed and Presbyterian folks from, say, Anglicans and Lutherans and Baptists are significant, but not as significant as people thought in their own day. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Not everyone listening may know the history of how this all came about because it's not just a magazine, it's a radio broadcast and now an internet podcast. There have been books and conferences and all kinds of things. So you have offices, you have staff, and you're now an institution, remarkably. But it didn't start out that way. No, it was just a ragtag group of friends. So when did this happen? Oh, no, you're asking me dates. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> give us an approximate year. We'll start with a decade and then we'll try to narrow it down. Yeah. You, you said 30 years ago. Yeah, 30 years ago. So where were you? What were you doing? I was, um, I think that sort of one catalyst was some people may remember Pearlygate, the PTL scandal and all of that. And I was concerned about the doctrine. You know, Luther said that the Reformation, you know, there have been many reformers who've come along who've talked about the abuses, about the hypocrisy about the scandalous lives of the popes and so forth. But he says, I'm going to go after the doctrine. So when it came to that TV evangelist thing, I tore a page out of his book and said, let's analyze the doctrine that leads to this corrupt mountain of TV evangelism, the prosperity gospel. So I gathered a group of people to treat that. R.C. Sproul, Walter Martin, a number of others contributed to that. Rod Rosenblatt, And a number of us just started meeting. We had a conference at Biola University. You were a college student. I was a college student. All right. That's important to know. So when I say, you know, young college-age men helped to bring about the Reformation, right, you did something like that. So not everybody involved in this at the early stages was that age, but you and some others really were just college kids. Yeah, a lot of us were college kids. And that book, The Agony of Deceit, captured, you know, it was 
Time Magazine, USA Today, all kinds of outlets. Overnight, it was sort of put, if you will, what we were trying to do on the map, this little ragtag newsletter that became Modern Reformation. And that's important, too. Yeah. So these things, these institutions that exist now, didn't start out with, you know, glossy pages no. and funding. staff and no. funding and all that. You weren't probably using a mimeograph, but I don't know, maybe you were. <laughs> maybe we'd have to explain We actually what... had a printer. Remember Kinko's? Yes. Yeah. All right. So the listener might not even know what a mimeograph is, but you could look it up on YouTube or something. You'll see what it is. Yeah. And then we had that conference and it, we had John Warwick Montgomery, Rod Rosenblatt, J.I. Packer, and Robert Godfrey. And that was a packed conference. After that conference, we had someone come up who will re- remain nameless, a really generous donor and gives us a lot of good things. And he said, you know, what would you like to do? And we kind of said, well, it's group. And so we got together uh, for pizza, a number of us, and said, uh, we want to start a radio program. What do you want to call it? I don't know. We'll get back to you next week on that. (laughs) And so we started on KKLA, flagship station of Salem Broadcasting in Los Angeles, and it grew rapidly. We called it White Horse Inn. One of the guys in the group said, hey, how about the name of that pub where people would meet in Cambridge? Erasmus was a visiting lecturer there at the time, and Roland Bainton said that he laid the egg that Luther hatched with his New Testament. You know, they were smuggling in Luther's books. It was This little pub was called Little Germany, and we thought, this is kind of a picture of what we'd like to do. It's not a church. It's a pub. It's a meeting place. It's a place where people just get together and talk informally, and that donor got us off and running. And before we knew it, the big wigs at Salem came to us and said, hey, this should go across the country. And so we started going on most of the stations across the Salem network. How did that affect you? I mean, you're a college kid. When I was in college, I was just trying to survive. (laughs) Well, I was in seminary by now. Okay. So by the time it really takes off and goes national, still you have some of the same difficulties, right? (laughs) Living out of a car. Yeah. Yeah. You still have classes to attend and books to read. And now you have a burgeoning organization that's beginning to take off. Who was on the White Horse Inn at the very beginning when you were sitting in the studios Mm. at KKLA? Well, right from the beginning, Rod Rosenblatt, Lutheran, professor at Concordia University in Irvine, California. Kim Riddlebarger, the pastor of Christ United Reformed Church in Anaheim, California. I had the pleasure of planting that church with Kim, started in my living room. And when I went off to Oxford to do my doctoral work, Kim took over and has led that church ever since. And then Ken Jones, representing the Baptist tradition. He was on the panel a little later, a few years later. But I learned, Scott, I learned more theology sitting around that table listening to those guys. Kim is the great exegete. He's a great historian as well, but especially always bringing it back to the text and handling it so well. J.I. Packer once said, Rod, you not only have Luther's theology, you embody the very man. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so true. Ken Jones, a great friend and a confidant and just a really good person and a pastor with pastoral instincts. It was just the right group. And ever since, although we're all aging and we're trying to make it a little bit more of a roundtable where we bring in friends from you know broader pool, we still have that rigorous commitment to getting the same quality of people around the table who know what they're talking about, who have special depth 
in those areas and can bring all of those gifts and skills to the table. You mentioned in passing just a moment ago the PTL Pearly Gates scandal. And this goes back to the 80s. And again, the listener may have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. So try to give us some idea of what it was and how that affected people and what that did to the way evangelical Christians are perceived in the broader culture. Well, you know, with the way the Reformation got off the ground was not because Luther had this great understanding of justification. That didn't come till later. When he nailed his 95 theses to the door, or didn't, but when the Reformation started, it was over the selling of indulgences. And it's interesting that with the prosperity gospel, all these TV evangelists saying they'll, you know, give you a better place in heaven and you'll have a better life now if you just give money to us, seed faith, they called it. These guys elicited the scorn of the culture. It's interesting, at the time of Luther, the ditty was... When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And that's what Tetzel, the salesman, this evangelist selling salvation, that's the ditty he wrote up. But some wag came up with an alternative. When the Pope rings in the pitcher, the Pope gets all the richer. (laughs) And then, you know, boy, very analogous to that, Ray Stevens came out with a top 10 hit during that period of talking about TV evangelists selling salvation in their hands wow, this is identical. This is happening all over again. So yeah, that book, The Agony of Deceit, sort of kicked it all off. And I was astonished at how a lot of people who had absolutely no interest in Reformed theology, nevertheless got on board and said, this is going beneath the tinsel and really exposing the beliefs at the heart that drive all of this. The Bible is a storybook. The stories of Scripture are thrilling and, best of all, true. For thousands of years, the stories of the Bible have captured the imaginations of believers. But how do you and I fit into God's stories? Creation, the Flood, Abraham, Israel, and David. Join the faculty of Westminster Seminary, California, January 12 and 13, 2018, for our annual conference, The Bible, His Stories, Your Life, on campus in Escondido. We'll explore how you and I fit into God's unfolding story of redemption. Join W. Robert Godfrey, David Vendrunen, Dennis Johnson, Joel Kim, Brian Estelle, and Joshua Vinny for The Bible, His Stories, Your Life at Westminster Seminary, California. It's Friday and Saturday, January 12 and 13 at Westminster Seminary, California, 1725 Bear Valley Parkway, Escondido. Call 888-480-8474 or go to wscal.edu. 888-480-8474 or wscal.edu for our January 2018 conference, The Bible, His Stories, Your Life. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Now, you know, we live after Jimmy Swaggart and after almost innumerable scandals of public religious figures, and many of them associated with Christianity and with evangelical Christianity. But there was a time when we were probably not held, or evangelicals were not held, in the same kind of regard that they are now, prior to the sort of very gross, very public, very tawdry scandals. And there were a whole bunch of them that happened right in a row. There was all the mess associated with PTL, praise the Lord, and there was an amusement park, and there was financial scandals 
scandals and sex scandals. And then Jimmy Swaggart was caught with a prostitute and mm-hmm. it just spiraled. Robert Tilton was found to be faking, you know, words of knowledge. His wife was, they had radios and she was telling him, you know, what people needed or wanted and he was getting- Total scam. Total yeah. scam. Yeah. So that there's kind of a before and after, and you were right in the middle of all this. Yeah. The thing was- Not that you were doing any no, of that, no, no, no. but you were speaking to that. Right. And it's interesting. It was unfolding as that book came out. So, you know, of course, they wanted me to talk about the moral aspects, and I had no idea. I wasn't a reporter. I wasn't a journalist. I didn't know, you know, I couldn't speak to what was going on inside these layers. It is interesting that when I was still in college, I went up to Jimmy Swaggart. He had come out with this whole series of programs on the five most damnable heresies in history, and they were, of course, the five points of Calvinism. And I asked him, I said, you know, what do you think is so dangerous about these doctrines? And he said, if you really believe that once you are saved, God always keeps you saved. If you really believe that, you'll be found dancing the cotton-eyed Joe in some (laughs) honky-tonk when Jesus comes and he won't take you. At the very time, he was sleeping with a prostitute. And so I looked at all this and, you know, how can the culture not completely lose its confidence? This was like our Watergate. Because what you had was people like Jerry Falwell moving in to take over PTL. Fundamentalist Baptist, they hate the Pentecostals, and yet he's moving in to take over. You really had this sense that the Christian right, which basically anointed kings, you couldn't really get a president or a congress without the blessing of the Christian right. They could make you or break you. Well, now you had this so-called moral majority mixed together with the TV evangelists, the prosperity gospel, and a lot of people just said, seriously, these people want to take over. These very people who tell us how we have to live, who are themselves living scandalous lives. I'm telling you, Scott, it was like when you read the beginning of the Reformation, you think, this is exactly the way things were in the late Middle Ages. The listener needs to understand that this stuff was on the morning news. So when you turned on the Today Show or Good Morning America, these were the leading stories. These were like soap operas. And we all got to know Tammy Faye Baker. And Jim Baker ended up going to prison for what I don't remember. And Tammy Faye ended up marrying the general contractor for the amusement park. In the 70s, I remember playing, or early 80s, at the Christian radio station where I worked, we played a song called Bible Land. I think it was by Terry Talbot, making fun of the possibility of a Christian amusement park, right? And it came li- true. It literally came true. It was hard for comedians during that period to come up with material because the truth was more tragically humorous to the culture than whatever comedians could make up. So we're talking to Mike Horton, and we're talking about the new volume published by Modern Reformation, well, published by Hendrickson, but this is a collection of essays from Modern Reformation magazine, The Reformation Then and Now, 25 Years of Modern Reformation Articles Celebrating 500 Years of the Reformation. And that gets us maybe to the underlying issues at which you were hinting or about what you were talking a moment ago, and that is that you saw, and the other guys involved in the early days of this uh, movement, saw a need for 
a modern reformation that we really had lost and continue to struggle to hang on to these basic reformation truths, right? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone. And here we are in 2017, 25 years after the founding of MR and 30 years after the beginning of Cure, right? Christians United for Reformation, yeah. And we're still having this discussion about how to relate justification to sanctification. We have discussions about initial justification and final justification. Initial justification is said to be one thing, you know, by grace alone, through faith alone, and a final justification or a final salvation. The same identical issues as the Reformation phase. Which is extraordinary that in some ways we're still having these discussions, but they really are essential to have. Yeah, every generation is going to have to reinvest in these truths. I mean, we can't pass a single generation. It's not as if, you know, well, yeah, 500 years later, things start to go south. Things start to go south during the Reformation. (laughs) I mean, it's really hard for the church to hold on to these truths. That's why they went into abeyance for centuries. It's not as if I I love the line from Charles Spurgeon. He says, no one has to be taught Pelagianism. It's in our mother's milk. (laughs) We have to be taught Augustinianism, in other words, salvation by grace alone. We, by nature, believe that people are basically good and could be better if we gave them some suggestions. Can't call them rules anymore, but we don't have rules, but suggestions to improve their lives. That kind of moralism, whether it's in the form of a kind of legalistic mean-spirited, finger-pointing tendency, or in the direction of what I call easy-listening legalism, where you basically say that the good news of the gospel is you can have your best life now, or we can have our best world now. It's all a form of let's all get together and, you know, we can pull this off and maybe God will step in at certain points and uh, give us a hand. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. One of the more significant moments in the history of the White Horse Movement is the Cambridge Declaration. Tell us how that came about. Sure. Well, without going into all the details, James Montgomery Boyce pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for so many years, and the editor of Eternity Magazine, also an editor of Christianity Today. Jim Boyce was a mentor of mine, my main mentor, as I was going through these younger years, since I was 13, actually. And we decided over many years, what would happen if we merged our two organizations to form another entity that was wider in its focus, And we really tried to bring together Christian leaders. This is serious. We seriously need to. Evangelicalism is becoming the sort of thing that very soon none of us is going to want to identify with. So David Wells wrote his book, No Place for Truth. I came out with another edited book called Power Religion. And those two books, according to Jim Boyce, were sort of the catalyst for his own thinking about how we needed to seriously get a group together. He had brought together this really remarkable group called the International Council for Biblical Inerrancy. So this was another movement that he thought was worth pulling together. So we call it the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and uh, he was president, I was vice president. And we had some great years there. In many respects, it was modeled on the White Horse Inn. We brought together Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, Baptist, E.B. Free, Independent, 
folks across the board. And that was a lot of fun. We had, besides Rod Rosenblatt, Robert Preuss, the great dean of Lutheran theology, who with his brother turned the whole Missouri Synod Lutheran denomination away from liberalism. We had Don Carson, Lig Duncan, Alistair Begg, really a remarkable group of people. And it was very exciting. Paul Zoll, those were really exciting days. This declaration came out in 1996, and it reasserted the Reformation basics, right? Yeah. So thesis one is sola scriptura, solus Christus, the erosion of Christ-centered faith, sola gratia, the erosion of the gospel, sola fide, the erosion of the chief article, soli deo gloria, right? And then a call to repentance and reformation. Yeah, it was end. a really remarkable meeting, about 500 Christian leaders from all of these traditions gathering in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So that's why it was called the Cambridge Declaration. And I think that was the greatest fruit of what we did in those days. Eventually, I came out here to be full-time professor at Westminster, California, where I'd been a student. And with that, we brought Whitehorse Inn and Modern Reformation back to the West Coast as our base and separated from the Alliance amicably, but just in order to be able to pursue our goals most efficiently. And um, the Alliance continues in uh, Philadelphia. So this comes in the wake of evangelicals and Catholics together. That was another, yeah. Another one of these. We had open theism. That was one debate. And in all these things, Scott, we tried to bring together the people who represented those positions and have debates. And a lot of times in these debates, people don't talk to each other. They talk about each other. So let's actually engage the views that people actually hold. So we had Clark Pinnock. And his, you know, two or three representatives, he thought, were the chief representatives along with him of that movement and debated open theism. But the evangelicals and Catholics together thing really threw me personally for a loop, particularly because two of my mentors, R.C. Sproul and J.I. Packer, were at loggerheads. And it was a heartbreaking thing to watch and be a part of. So now the question was evangelicals and evangelicals together. Unfortunately, that document, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, said that, well, we really believe the same gospel, even though we disagree on questions like merit and justification by imputed righteousness. And when you say we, you're not talking about evangelicals. You're talking about evangelicals evangelicals and Catholics. And Roman Catholics. Mm -hmm. And so the first of these documents asserted that really there isn't any fundamental difference anymore between what Rome is saying and what we're saying. At least, there may be fundamental differences, but at least we believe the gospel together and we proclaim the gospel together. And that caused a significant, not only disruption in personal relationships, but it's hard to imagine now maybe, but there was a considerable degree of controversy and discussion and conferences and articles and books. How can you say that we affirm the gospel with a group of Christians, professing Christians, who officially declare that those who believe they're justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ alone are anathema? that that gospel is another gospel. It's a false gospel. Well, you can only do so if you no longer believe that that article is of significance. Well, the article of the standing or falling of the church. Right. So now, here we are in 2017. Remarkably, the Cambridge Declaration was in 1996. Is there still a need for 
modern Reformation, Whitehorse in for people to stand up and remind people of the Reformation? Or is it all passe if we move beyond it? Or has everybody gotten it so that we really don't need to be reminded anymore? <laughs> Boy, if, if ever there was a softball. There is no need for modern Reformation and Whitehorse in, but there is absolutely a need in every generation for Christians to come together who believe this stuff and to witness together to it, to proclaim it together, to dig it up and explain it together, to say, look, among all the divisions in the church, we're coming together across wide swaths of Christendom to say, no, this is the gospel. Yeah, there will be an absolute need in every generation for that to happen. But the institutions that do that will come and go. The institution that is ordained to do that week in and week out and to have the continuity from the time of Christ to Christ's first advent to the time of his second advent is the church. And sometimes the church needs to be reminded. Sometimes the church needs to be stirred awake to realize that its treasures are being stolen. Sometimes the church itself becomes like the world. So what you have are Christians from various churches coming together and saying, look, all of us need to stand on the ramparts and shout as loudly as we can that there's danger here. The greatest danger in any generation is whether the gospel is being faithfully preached. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.